All right. I hope that was a encouraging time of praise and worship for all of you. And now it's time to get into our study of God's Word. And today we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 20, just a couple of verses, just chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. We'll be looking at Exodus 20, 1 through 3. And don't forget, at the end of service, we'll be celebrating Holy Communion together. So if you need to get up, grab your bread, crackers, juice, what have you, um, you can go ahead and just have that ready, and we'll be doing that at the end. So just a reminder there. Um, but real quick, I have a question for all of you. How many of you like wedding movies? That's one. How many of you like wedding movies? Probably almost no guys. How many of you like wedding movies? And secondly, what's your favorite movie about weddings or where a wedding is kind of at the center? So go ahead and just type those in for fun if you want to put those in the comment section. I'll go back and look at them later. But what I want to do is I want to go ahead and share with you mine. So number one, to answer the first question, yeah, I, I don't really like <laughs> wedding movies that much. However, there, there are exceptions, and the exception that comes to mind is the movie The Father of the Bride with Steve Martin, right? So that's, I believe it was a 1991 remake of a 1950 movie. But The Father of the Bride, how many of you have seen that one? So what I, I love that movie because especially now as, as a father and having, I have both sons and, and daughters, and I can really start to see how Steve Martin as a father must have felt. So kind of in that movie, and it's absolutely hilarious if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. I think it's a pretty clean uh, movie. Uh, but there's, there's two kind of main things happening to Steve Martin's character as a father. Uh, number one, and the most central and, and moving aspect is his little girl is all grown up and she's gonna get married off and some other man is going to be the focus of her life and she's going to be gone and so he's dealing with that and that's a very very hard thing and then to top it off it's the stress of a wedding uh, the cost of the wedding and and the stress of the wedding and dealing with steve martin you know in his mind losing his daughter to this guy um, he just starts going crazy um, the the amount of money they want to spend i think it was gosh in the movie i think it was well over a hundred thousand dollars or something and, and he starts freaking out and famously there's this scene where steve martin he's, he's at his wits end and he's losing it and he goes into the store <laughs> And he goes in to buy hot dogs and hot dog buns. And, and what he's, all of a sudden, he starts going through the, the bun aisle and he starts tearing open the hot dog buns and taking out some of the buns and putting them back. And he grabs another package, tears it open, takes out some of the buns, puts them back. And then one of the, the store manager comes over and says, Sir, you, you can't be doing that. What are you doing? And he just goes off on this rant kind of like some of the rants we've been seeing live video of people about the mask in stores and they're just going off on people they're at their wits end it's not just about the mask steve martin it's not just about the buns but he's he's just so overwhelmed with the cost of the wedding and losing his daughter uh, he famously says some big shot at the hot dog company got together with some big shot at the bun company and they're trying to rip off the american public you've got eight buns here and you've got six hot dogs here so i have superfluous buns and i'm this netwit's not being taken advantage of anymore so great movie hilarious but it highlights uh, just the the beauty and the chaos of weddings and it kind of reminds me of how powerful this this picture of a wedding is still in our culture today so by one recent estimate, we still spend $74 billion a year in America on weddings. $74 billion, with a B, on weddings. And there's roughly 2.5 million weddings every single year. And what's crazy is with, with all that money going towards weddings, all these weddings continuing to happen, and yet there, there's so many problems in marriage. There's so many breakdowns in marriage. There's so many uh, divorces. As a matter of fact, I know some secular counselors 
have actually said that when they do premarital counseling, they actually go ahead and do the divorce talk with them because it is so likely 40 to 50% on your first marriage alone. And then if it's a subsequent marriage, the, the percentages go up. They actually say that you should have the divorce talk before you even get married. And yet with all of that, with all, with all the divorce, with the 11 billion plus spent on family attorneys, not to mention dividing up assets and alimony and, and child support and all this kind of stuff, despite all the chaos, people are still rushing to the altar. Now, why is that? Why would people keep doing that? And there's probably a lot of answers that could be given, but I wanna give one this morning. And the answer the Bible gives is because God has put this idea of a wedding deep into the soul of humanity, this idea of a wedding. But here's the big surprise for many people. It's not that God put the deep desire for a wedding necessarily uh, to, to a, a man or, or a woman of your dreams, but rather God has implanted in human beings the desire of the soul for union with God. We see this actually both in the Old and the New Testament. The desire of the soul that God has put in humanity is to be wedded to their maker, to God. And so I want you to keep that wedding imagery in mind as we now look at the Ten Commandments. Now I know those two images, a wedding and the Ten Commandments, might not be things you've ever put together before. And as a matter of fact, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, I, I think people have kind of a very, very harsh authoritarian, maybe military school, you know, like drill sergeant school or something like that. But friends, I would say that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening here in Exodus 20. What I want to suggest this morning as we look at the first commandment, and we're going to be walking through uh, the various commandments over the coming weeks. We'll take them one at a time. But today as we begin and we look at the prologue and we look at the first commandment, I want you to recognize that this is actually the wedding day of Yahweh and Israel. It's Yahweh's wedding day. He's already spent redeeming Israel. Time has been spent. He's been saving them and reaching out and lavishing, wooing Israel and bringing Israel to himself. And now at Sinai, it is time for the wedding. Sinai is the altar of God where God is entering into a marriage covenant with Israel. And now if, I think if we look at the Ten Commandments in this way, it might change radically how we look at God's word, God's commandments, and especially the Ten Commandments as we move forward. So let's go ahead and read the text together. We'll pray and we'll get into our study. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 3. This is God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus, who has made a new and living way to union with God possible. Lord, we thank you so much that you desire to be united to your people. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, for we, like so many, would go astray and remain there the rest of our lives. But Lord, we thank you that just like for ancient Israel, you too have initiated in our lives. You have taken the first step. You have reached out. You have drawn us to yourself. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would understand as we read your word, as we read the things that you command your people, that you do it with the intention of drawing us closer to yourself. 
so we can know you more, so we can enter into this glorious union that the human soul can be reunited with our Creator and our Redeemer. And so, Lord, we just pray for a blessing now over the reading of your word. We pray that it would be food for our souls this morning. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I I wonder how many of you have thought of the Ten Commandments and this whole scene at Sinai as Yahweh's wedding day, but that's exactly what is happening here. Uh, As a matter of fact, later in the prophets, God will explicitly say this. Uh, Many times when God sends a prophet to Israel and they've been breaking the terms of this covenant right here, God will say, I have been a husband to you and me a wife, but you have been unfaithful. And that's the language that God is using. And the prophets, as we're teaching on Wednesday night, are covenant lawyers, covenant attorneys that God is actually having to send to Israel and say, hey, you agreed to this. You agreed to be faithful. You're being unfaithful and you need to change or else all the things that are in the covenant for breaking the covenant are going to be enacted. And so this is not a fancy imagination on my part. This is simply what the Bible says, what God says himself about Israel. I think it's important just to remember where this is located as well, because I think Exodus 20 gets taken out of context many times, if not even most of the time. So if we can just back up slightly and remember what's happened before this covenant at Sinai and the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words uh, in Hebrew are actually given. So first of all, just a reminder of the order of the events. God delivered Israel, a nation of slaves. He delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and he exposed all the false gods of Egypt as being just that, false gods who cannot save. And so I think it's important to point out that the order of the events is doesn't get switched. In other words, some people in their minds, they might know about the Ten Commandments, they might know about God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, but in their minds, they don't get the order of the events right. Some people feel like you God gives the Ten Commandments, then if you keep all the Ten Commandments and you do it for a long time, then God will save you out of Egypt, then he'll deliver you. That's not the order of the Bible. The order of the Bible is God initiated, God in his grace, God in his love, God in his mercy. God reaches out to his lost and enslaved people and he delivers them first. And I would say to follow up with the marriage metaphor, this is the wooing of God. This is God going out of his way. This is God taking the first step, not waiting for Israel to call upon God. No, he shows himself. He reveals himself to them and he woos Israel. He's demonstrating who he is. He's demonstrating his love for Israel. When Yahweh asks Israel to keep these commandments, Israel knows who God is at this point. They know he's not some cruel God, some mean God. If you only keep all the rules, then he'll love you. And he doesn't. No, they know that the God giving these 10 words, these 10 commandments, is the God who's already lavished his love upon them. He's always given them grace. So friends, this is a fundamental Christian principle that obedience is always a response to God's grace. Obedience is always a response to God's initiating grace. It's important that we get the order correct. So God has already done all this for Israel, and now he's brought them to Sinai. And now, having already delivered them and showed his love and shown his power and shown his faithfulness to his word, It is now time for Israel to respond, and they are to be joined to the Lord. They are to be his his bride, okay? And so I want you to think of the context in this light. Now let's look at the text and make a few observations. Uh, First of all, notice it says, And God spoke all these words. Something new is happening here. If you remember before, God's been speaking to the Israelites, but he was not speaking to them directly. 
prior to this, God was only speaking to Israel through the mediator, Moses. But here for the first time, we see that God is bypassing the mediator, as it were, and he is speaking directly to the people. And friends, the reason I'm highlighting this is because like Israel, sometimes we're not sure if God is speaking to us or not. That's a legitimate concern. Sometimes we're not sure. For Christians today, sometimes outside of the Bible, we're not sure. When you have this feeling, this inclination, this thought that says, hey, uh, things are looking pretty bad in the culture and the economy. Maybe we should sell our house and move to Texas. Okay, how do you know that voice is from God? How do you know that's the Lord leading you? How that's how do you know that's not juice? There's a legitimate concern where sometimes we want to hear from God, but we're not sure that we are. But we should never confuse that kind of situation when we're talking about things that concern us as in unique individuals, so not us collectively as believers, and we should make a distinction between that and the ambiguity that may be related to that and the Bible. The Bible is God's direct speech to you and I. Just as God here bypasses the mediator, because maybe Israel says, well, I don't know, Moses, you're saying God told you this, but how do we know? And remember, effectively, they said that earlier. When God sent Moses first to deliver them, they were like, how do we know Yahweh sent you? And then that's when he threw down the staff, it became a snake, put his hand into his cloak and pulled it out and it became leprous and he put it back and it was healed. They didn't know. They're like, how do I know this is a word from God? But here God is speaking directly to Israel. So in other words, they know it's God. There's no excuse. There's, there's no doubt. God is speaking to them. And that's the same kind of confidence that you and I should have with regard to the Bible. We know that we know that we know God is speaking to us in the Bible. Now again, like Israel, we, there's things we would love to hear from God about. Should we do this thing over here? Should we do that thing over there? Um, it, it, whatever the case might be. And we don't always know that. But never give up what you know for what you don't know. In other words, just because some things in life are ambiguous and confusing and, and we don't have a word from, from the Lord on that specific thing, or maybe we think we do, but we're not sure, don't get that confused with our assurity of God speaking in the Bible. We know that we know that we know God is speaking to us, just as Israel here knew for the first time, perhaps, they know God is speaking to them. And so God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, verse 2, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Okay, as I said, if continuing with the wedding metaphor, notice that there's the recitation of the history already between the Lord and his bride. Now, I've done literally dozens and dozens of weddings over the years. And not everyone does this, but it's actually a very common feature of weddings that, that I've performed. And that is that the bride or the groom will often opt to write out their own vows, in addition to the ones that, that will say, um, because sometimes theirs are not really rooted in the Bible uh, and, and what God says. But nevertheless, it's, you know, fair enough. Yeah, you want to include. Uh, and one of the things they'll do is they'll share their story. You know, dear Beth, dear Mike, when I first met you, this is what I thought. Hopefully it was good. This is what I thought. Sometimes they're funny or like, and I didn't give you a second look or whatever the case might be. But one of the things they'll typically do in a wedding today is kind of recite their history. What led up to this moment? That's something that people often want to share with others when they get married. Well, we're seeing God do the same thing. As Israel is coming to the altar and the vows are being read, these are the vows. God is reciting his past faithfulness. Israel, this is how we met. When I met you, Israel, you were a slave in Egypt. You, you didn't have anything going for you. And when I reached out to you, it wasn't because you, you, were, you were the best. It wasn't because you were the most numerous. It wasn't because you were the most powerful. It wasn't because you were the only one. 
It's simply, I loved you because I loved you, Israel. And I'm, and I'm a faithful God, and I am keeping my promise to your ancestors. And so I reached out to you, Israel, and I saved you. I delivered you. Even when you doubted me, do you remember that? You doubted me time and time again. You doubted me. And yet I saved you. I delivered you. I, I made good on who I am. And now here we stand today, Israel. That's what God is saying. He's gone through the wooing process, and here is the prologue. This is the statement that comes before the vows. And really, it's the reason for the vows. It's the reason for the commandments, friends. So we cannot divorce the rest of the commandments from the prologue. The reason Israel is to keep these Ten Commandments is because God has already revealed himself. It is because God has already shown his love. It is because God has already demonstrated himself to be faithful. In other words, he is worthy of a total commitment of the heart to him. He is worthy of Israel being wedded and joined to Yahweh himself. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then comes the first of the ten commandments or the ten words. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Friends, that's another statement that we say commonly in vows. And again, I looked it up on the internet the other day just to make sure because I know the vows I use. I have my, my standard kind of format and then I'll you know make minor changes depending on you know the couple's wishes and requests and, and what they're doing. But more or less, I have mine and it's, you know, we got scripture in there, multiple scriptures. We've got Ephesians 5 in there, Christ and the church. Um, the, uh, the church is the bride of Christ and he's the groom. Um, we've got the pictures of 1 Corinthians 13, what true love is, what godly love looks like. So it's, it's, it's thoroughly Christian, but I also incorporate some of the traditional vows because I actually think they're very good. But because I know things have changed a lot in our culture, I thought it was important for the sake of today's illustration just to look up and say, hey, like if you go to a justice of the peace uh, or something like that, do they still say these basic things? And I found out that they do. You'll all recognize this famous line in wedding vows, forsaking all others for richer or poorer for better or for worse forsaking all others that is a vow of exclusivity isn't it it's a vow of monogamy now it's interesting and i know historians and anthropologists like to argue this point and and i find that most anthropologists are not christians and many, I won't say most, I, I don't know enough to, to say most, but many of the anthropologists that I've read don't like to give much positive credit to Christianity. So I'm, I'm aware that there's a bias there. But one of the things you see when you look at the history of marriage, and I actually have a book on, on the history of marriage, and it's fascinating, but the most practiced form of marriage in the world since the beginning of human history is polygamy. Not monogamy, polygamy. The most practiced form of marriage in the ancient world was polygamy. In other words, on their wedding day, that line, forsaking all others, or verse 3, have no other gods, it's not there. If you enter into a, if you're an ancient Sumerian, you know, you're an ancient Canaanite, whoever it is, you're an ancient Egyptian, when if the if the God wants to enter into some kind of covenant and you, you won't really get a God that wants to enter into a covenant anyway, but even then it wouldn't be exclusive. It would be this understanding, yeah, we're going to be sister wives, there's going to be a bunch of us and, you know, we'll all be married together, this, this whole group. Polygamy was the norm. But the, both Jewish and Christian views it advanced monogamy as the ideal. As a matter of fact, so strong is this polygamous impulse that even though the Bible, in terms of its moral aim, aims at monogamy, we often see that characters in the Bible fail to live up to that ideal. We see it with Abraham 
himself. We see it with David. We certainly see it with the Solomon quite a few times, as a matter of fact. Um, and yet, don't confuse the fact that the Bible does not engage in hagiography. That is, the Bible doesn't clean up its characters to make them um, look like they're perfect people. The Bible gives you the warts and all. It gives you a real picture of human life. And it shows that even though monogamy is the ideal, God made them in the beginning, male and female, singular, one man for one woman. That's the intention. But the natural heart was so geared towards polygamy that it was so common that even the fathers of the faith often lapsed morally, personally, in this regard. And that's actually what makes this idea of an exclusive relationship with God so unique. It stood out in the ancient world. Just like the practice of monogamy at one time was strange, and it, and it stood out. Again, we take for granted, although this is changing in our culture today, I think polygamy is a, a very possible uh, sort of culturally acceptable thing coming up. I'm actually surprised it hasn't hit already, but I think it could easily be going there very, very soon where it becomes a normal, legal, practiced form of marriage. But people take for granted that Judaism and Christianity have exalted this monogamous ideal to the point where even pagans, non-Christians among us, recognize monogamy as being an ideal, at least something to aim for. And friends, that, that's rooted in the idea of monotheism, the idea that there's only one God, and therefore God requires that anyone who enters into the covenant with him enter into it only with him. Monotheism is the theological flip side of monogamous marriage. It's the same idea. We are married to one person because there's one God who enters into exclusive relationship. So one precedes the other. It is the oneness of God and the exclusivity of God that is meant to drive our view of what marriage ought to look like. So you shall have no other gods before me, forsaking all others. Now, obviously, this needs to be said for a number of reasons. And at this point, I want to give you three ways in which we are like Israel at Sinai. Three ways in which we are like Israel at Sinai. Number one. Like Israel, human beings are inclined towards false gods to a greater or lesser extent. Let me say that again. Number one, like Israel, human beings are inclined towards false gods or other gods to a greater or lesser extent. Now, let me qualify that. I said greater and lesser, and those are definitive categories, and I'll tell you what they are and why. So there's two categories, non-Christian and Christian. I'm going to argue there's some kind of inclination in both, but one is far greater, fundamentally greater, and the one is fundamentally lesser. So first, non-Christians. I want to read to you Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. And again, Romans 1 is paradigmatic. In other words, it gives us a universal view of humanity, a universal overview of history. And it sort of sums up this, this polygamist, this polytheist, natural innate desire in human beings. And Paul recognizes that and he identifies it as sin here. Romans 1, 18 through 23, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what be, may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invi invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, 
they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image make like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. What Paul says is that, again, this is true of humanity. This is true of human beings, those apart from Christ, that they have a knowledge of God the Creator, doesn't say man has an innate knowledge of God the Redeemer. We need special revelation for that. But man, universal man, has knowledge of God the Creator. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 1. But all of them naturally, the natural response to that innate knowledge of the one Creator God is to push that truth down. And as that truth of the one God is pushed down, up comes, you'll notice this, this connection, the suppression of the truth of the one God results in many gods. We begin to deify things in the world. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week as we get to the second commandment. But I just want to suffice it to say right now, the Bible is teaching that human beings fundamentally, fundamentally, apart from God, as naturally born into the world, are inclined towards false gods, to other gods. In other words, if there's no reigns, there's no rules, they're going after other gods. Just like in the ancient world, the normal mode of marriage was polygamy. Without that external religious constraint of monogamy, man was just going to go all over the place and be with all kinds of people. Now, secondly, I said human beings are to a greater or lesser extent. And this is where we bring up Christian. So I want to say that to an extent it's lesser, it still applies. Now, I think there's a couple of mistakes people make with regard to Christians and this inclination. Uh, number one, some people make the mistake of not making a distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian with respect to their desire towards false gods. That's a mistake. The Bible says that if you're in Christ, you're born again, you have a new heart, um, you're not going to be the same as somebody who, who is naturally into this world. Again, hence the term Jesus used, born again. It's literally a new life. You are capable of new things. So we want to recognize there's even if, if there is such an inclination at all in a Christian, it cannot be to the same extent as somebody who is not a Christian. So there's a firm uh, distinction to be made there. However, there's another mistake. Some Christians get the idea, well, that I, since I'm in Christ, everything about me is good and right and holy. Friends, that's actually false. That's unbiblical. The Bible does not teach that when you place faith in Christ, everything about your life including all of your behavior and all of your actions and all of your thoughts and your opinions and your words, that suddenly all of those are sacred and nobody can tell you anything about it. There's no corrections to be made because you've got this idea, well, if I'm a Christian, everything about me and my opinions is right. Friends, that's not true. Let me read to you. There's many examples, by the way, but let me read one passage to you that proves the point. Galatians 5, 16 through 18. The Apostle Paul, writing to believers, to the Galatian church, says this. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But... If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, again, there's many places in the New Testament that go on to explain to us that though it's true, if we're in Christ, if we've placed faith in Jesus, we've been wedded to, to Yahweh, to God, through the new covenant in Christ's blood. It's true. Fundamentally, we are no longer inclined towards false gods. We are no longer slaves to false gods, the way that somebody who suppresses and rejects Christ would certainly be. However, 
It is also true that even though fundamentally now we've been given a new heart and, and we're able, we're, we even have an inclination toward God, the spirit of adoption within the believer that cries out, Abba, Father. So we have that, and yet sin still remains in us. And Paul acknowledges, he says, now there's a battle. This can't be referring to the non-believer besides the broader context, but also the fact that the non-believer does not have the spirit of God. The Spirit of God does not indwell them. That is said of the believer only. So this battle going on is happening in the believer, which means there's still something of the old sin nature left. There's still some inclination towards other gods or, or false gods. And again, I know many of you are like, well, I might be inclined to certain sins, but not false gods. Hang on, let's, let's see if you still think that after next week when we look at the second commandment and I explain what idols are. But just suffice it to say for now, if you're in Christ, fundamentally you are no longer inclined towards false gods. Th praise God for that. But don't be deceived, friends, that that means all of your thoughts and opinions about everything, about the world, what's going on in the world, what's going on in politics, what's wrong with your husband, what's wrong with your wife, what's wrong with your kids, what's wrong with people in the church, what's wrong with the pastor. Don't think to yourself that all of your opinions are right because I guarantee you they're not. Not only do you remain finite and fallible, and, and that's not necessarily sin, Simply to be finite is not sinful and infallible. Just not knowing everything? Well, no, that's, that's not necessarily sin either. But in addition to being finite and fallible, there's still sin in us. And this is demonstrated by the fact that even though we're, we've been saved and we've been forgiven and we've been redeemed, we will still die a physical death. Death is still the result of sin. After that, we'll be raised again to new life never to die again, but the fact that we still do die, even after believing in Christ, is proof that we still have sin. There is something of the sin nature left. So like Israel, we are inclined to a greater or lesser extent to other gods. Again, God is having to say this. Why is he saying it? Because Israel is naturally inclined towards other gods. And you see this. The rest of the Old Testament bears witness to this. Over and over and over, Israel does what? Strays. Does, it does not remain in an exclusive uh, monotheistic monogamous relationship with Yahweh, but rather goes after other gods. Number two, like Israel, there is also an exodus for us, only better. Like Israel, there is also an exodus for us, but only better. I want to read to you a, a beautiful passage. I, I think most of you probably know this, but maybe you've never thought of it in light of the narrative before us today in Exodus 20. But I want to read to you right now Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. You can just jot the reference down, look at it later, or if you can turn there quickly, go ahead. Luke 9, 28 through 36. And I want you to think about this scene. It's the transfiguration of Jesus up on a mountain. And I want you to think of this as mirroring the very scene we're looking at in Exodus 20. Okay, just, just bear it in mind and, and I'll, I'll draw uh, the comparisons. So Luke 9, 28 through 36. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. So first of all, there's the background. It's this mountain. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him. One was Moses. He's up on the mountain. The glory of God is starting to be revealed. Guess who's there? Moses. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, that's the new King James, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, that word decease, and I would mark this, I would write this down, mark it in your Bible, is literally the Greek word exodus. It's literally the word exodus. They spoke to Jesus about his exodus. He's up on a mountain. God's glory is being revealed. Moses is there, and Jesus is talking about his 
Exodus. What this does for us, friends, is it points back to the Exodus story as being a type of which Christ and his ministry, his victory through the cross and his ascension is the anti-type. It is the fulfillment. It is the true and better Exodus. God has something, a better deliverance, a better Exodus for us today even than Israel had, as glorious as it was, as amazing as it was, there's something even better for us today. But let's move on. There's still more. So he spoke to them about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. Whose glory did they see? His glory, the glory is Jesus. So in the Exodus story, it's the glory of Yahweh. The glory of God, Yahweh is appearing on Mount Sinai. Here, the glory of God is, is being revealed, but who is it being revealed through? Who is the one through whom the glory of God is revealed? Jesus Christ, the better prophet than Moses. So they saw his glory and the two men that were with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. <laughs> I love that. Peter. Did, that, was, that could be a typical refrain for Peter. And Peter, not knowing what he was saying, went ahead and spoke anyway. You ever done that? Probably. So he went ahead, not knowing what he was talking about. Verse 34, while he was saying this, friends, here we go again, typology. While he was saying, a cloud came and overshadowed them. If you look back to Exodus 19, a cloud descended down on top of Sinai. Here it is again. Oh, but wait, Pastor Mike, these are still two different. Even though Moses is there, even though it's up a mountain, even though the glory of God's being revealed, even though a cloud is coming down in both instances. But, but one thing's clearly different. In the Exodus story, God's voice spoke from heaven. Oh, wait, that's happening here too. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful. Notice how the Israelites were at Sinai when Yahweh's glory appeared in the cloud, touching down at the top of Mount Sinai. They were greatly afraid. The apostles also respond in the same way. They are greatly afraid. And here it is, friends. And a voice came out of the cloud. The same thing happening here. But listen to what the voice says. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. In other words, if you want to hear the voice of God, you listen to Jesus. How amazing is that? And how amazing that is if we draw the connection between Exodus 20 and Sinai and the first commandment, that shall have no other gods. And yet God says, but here is Christ through whom my glory is revealed. That right there is another statement saying Jesus is not another God. He's not a lesser God. In a very statement of clear monotheism, you shall have no other gods before me. And in the clear anti-type fulfillment in the New Testament, hear Jesus. The glory of God revealed in Jesus. The voice of God is heard through Jesus. Listen to him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days of any of the things they had seen. Again, friends, just like Israel at Sinai, God is doing a greater exodus. And friends, the journey of our exodus is not over. It is still continuing. We are being saved. The scripture talks about having been saved, a completed action in the past. But the scriptures also speak, the New Testament, of being saved. You and I are presently being saved. We are being delivered out of the hand of the world and out of sin and out of death. So rejoice in the knowledge. There is a greater exodus than the one here in the book of Exodus for you and I today. Lastly, number three. Like Israel, our hearts are to be wedded to the Lord by grace through faith. Like Israel, 
Our hearts are to be wedded to the Lord by grace through faith. Notice that the first commandment is, is not a, a moral ethical go-to. In other words, a commandment regarding your neighbor, a commandment regarding other people. This is an explicitly religious statement. And it's, I think it's the one that through which we're meant to understand all the rest. If you don't understand this, if you don't understand the first one, what the first commandment is, you will fail to understand all the rest. I want to suggest that this first commandment, to have no other gods before Yahweh, is the fulfillment of all the commandments. All the commandments flow out of this one. And again, this is not just my statement, but this idea of faith before works. Notice the order, friends. Faith preceding works. The first commandment is one requiring faith. It's not, you know, all the other ones. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't commit, oh, and then have faith. No. Faith is first. Notice that. And that's not just a historical happenstance here in Exodus 20. This is a theological truth affirmed by Jesus in the New Testament. I'm going to read you two different verses. The first one is Romans 7, 4. And this one, and there's many that do this, it reminds us just as Yahweh had a wedding day with Israel at Sinai, so too we are wedded to the Lord. That desire, there is a deep, deep desire in man to have union with God, union with Christ in the Spirit. We desire it more than anything. And even human marriage, though it can be a picture of that, ultimately it's never ultimately the same. It'll fail, it can fall apart, it'll end upon death. There is a greater marriage that our souls actually long for. First of all, this is affirmed in Romans 7, 4. Paul says this, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So notice, friends, the New Testament, Romans 7, 4, we are commanded to say yes to the altar. We're looking at what Jesus has done for us. What did he give for his wedding gift? He gave his life. There's no, you know, the father of the bride might have spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on a wedding. Christ spent infinitely more, not with money, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but the infinitely precious blood of Christ. That was his wedding gift to his people. He spared no expense. We are called to be united to him in an exclusively monotheistic monogamous relationship where there's no other gods of any kind. No one, nothing takes the place of God in our lives. Again, as far as faith preceding works, Faith in commandment number one precedes the work that follows in the rest. Notice how Jesus affirms this in the New Testament in John chapter 6, verses 28 through 29. Then they said to Jesus, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? What shall we do that we can do the works of works of God? You might think, uh, you know, tithe, uh, you know, build the temple, do the Sabbath, don't steal, don't kill, do good deeds to your neighbor. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Notice that is the work. The number one work is believe in God, faith in God, trust in God. And friends, as I'm trying to show you this morning, that's no new New Testament idea. New New Testament idea. This comes from Exodus 20. The first thing God, Yahweh, asked Israel to do was believe. Trust in me. Believe in me. That is what the first commandment is all about. And from that faith in God flows obedience in the commandments. It makes sense out of the rest. It supplies us with the spiritual resources we need to fulfill the rest. And so, friends, if we lose this first commandment, if we lose that faith, faith in God alone, no one, nothing can come before God, then, friends, we go the way 
of Israel in the Old Testament, who so many times, though they said yes at the altar, yet they wandered in the marriage. It might have been a great wedding day, but the marriage was a disaster. Friends, it is not to be that way with us today. If any of us are in Christ, we are called to be faithful. That means we cannot put our wives or husbands or the desire for a wife or for a husband or for your sons or your daughters or your job or your health or anything, nothing in all of creation can come before the one uncreated creator who has reached out and redeemed us through the blood of his son, Jesus. Friends, I pray today if any of you have not been joined to Christ. You have not understand the, the exodus that God is doing for all of us, that the greater Egypt is that of sin and death, and it ensnares not just Israel, but all the nations of the world. And so God is delivering people from that. And even today, saints, we are in Christ by grace through faith, not because of everything right in our lives, not because there's not things we don't have to repent or confess of, but because God is faithful. The reason the new covenant works in a way the old didn't is because through Jesus, God is not only fulfilling the divine side of the divine human covenant, but God is even fulfilling the human side on our behalf. So we can enter into the one and only perfectly faithful, perfectly fulfilling marriage that lasts forever. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this afternoon and we thank you and praise you that you would look upon us with compassion and mercy. Lord, we thank you that even in all of our sins, all of our wrongdoing, both that we, we did knowingly and that which we did in ignorance, Lord, knowing all of our history, everything wrong about us in every way, the things we've done, the things we've said, the things we've even thought of in our imaginations, you know all these things, and yet you have still chosen to reach out through Christ and through the Spirit and to make us your own. You've redeemed us from the auction block of sin. You've released us from being a slave to the false gods of this world. And so it is my prayer today that we would draw closer to you than ever before, that you would reveal to us if there's any idols, if there's anything that we put before you, perhaps some of us, it's our own opinions. We put our own opinions before you. We don't even allow you or your word to critique our thoughts. Some of us, it might be our emotions, however I feel, that's what's true. And we don't even allow your holy word to critique our emotions. Some of us, we, we won't allow you to critique our spending habits with money. Some of us, we won't allow you to critique the, what we do with our bodies, maybe sexually, Lord. But I pray that we would see that you are worthy of total and exclusive allegiance. And so anything in our lives that is not befitting this covenant, we pray that we would have the ability and the knowledge to forsake all others. I just pray for a blessing now on your people. Fill them with the joy of Christ who came to make our joy complete. And we just pray that you would use us to bring the joy and hope of union with God through Christ to those who don't have it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.